All right, grab your Bibles, open them up to the book of Colossians chapter 2. We are in this series called Invisible God, Visible Faith. Uh, Pastor Leo Kloos was here over the last three weeks, did an incredible job getting us started. We're continuing uh, in this series. Colossians chapter 2, verses 6 to 15 is where we'll be in just a moment. Now, the drive from uh, Whitehorse to Pelly Crossing is about three hours long. And one of the most notable features of the drive, along with the stunning views, is that most of the time you are driving on this small two-lane highway up and down mountains, you do so without guardrails. Now, I've been driving for a while. I've, by the Lord's grace and kindness, never needed the use of a guardrail to keep me on the road. And yet, despite that, not having them was unnerving. As soon as the focus goes from driving on the road as normal to something else around us or not around us, as was the case for us, it affects how we drive, does it not? See, guardrails are good and helpful for sure, but they're not meant to be the focus. When they become the focus, they might actually become unhelpful. And the same goes for us in our Christian life. Let's, let's, let's extrapolate that visual out for just a moment. Let's say, let's say the road that we're driving on is the gospel. If that is the case, then the guardrails on either side of us would be things like discipleship, spiritual disciplines, evangelism, serving at church, giving, studying theology, many, many more. And like guardrails as you're driving, those things are good. And they're helpful for us as we make our way down the road of the Christian life safely and effectively. But they too can become a problem if they become the focus. The temptation for many of us, no matter how long we've been walking with Jesus, we've been driving on the gospel road, is to view the gospel, the good news of the coming of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, to this earth to die a death we deserved in our place, to rise from the dead three days later and ascend to the right hand of the throne of the Father where he is right now. The temptation is to view that like the on-ramp to the Christian highway, but then leave it in the rearview mirror, to move on to other things that we deem more important. The problem with this is it's the complete opposite of how the New Testament as a whole, and specifically how Paul in his letter to the Colossians portrays the Christian life. If we truly understand the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, what we read in, in verse 13 in our passage this morning, and you who were dead in your trespasses and sins, God made alive together with him, with Christ. To understand that is to recognize that Christianity is not about getting in by grace and then getting less and less dependent on it, but instead it's growing in our dependence of God's grace every day we experience it. So if my faith is going to grow, which I hope is the reason that you're here this morning, it's not the guardrails of the Christian life I need to focus on. But my faith will grow when I accept the fact that Jesus Christ alone is all I need and follow the road that he's clearly marked out for me. 
And that's what we'll see from the text this morning. So let's turn our attention to God's word, Colossians 2, starting in verse 6. Follow along with me as I read God's word to us this morning. Paul writes, Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by, the putting, by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. My faith will grow when Jesus is all I need. And three things we see specifically that Jesus will do when that is our reality. First, he defines what I do. When Jesus is all I need, he defines what I do. Now, you will remember, hopefully, that Paul is writing this letter to the Colossian church in response to a false teaching that was making inroads in the lives of the believers. Scholars debate as to what exactly that false teaching was, but it can, in essence, be boiled down to this one thing, fulfillment doesn't come exclusively from Jesus. That's what these false teachers were trying to get the Colossian believers to believe. Fulfillment doesn't come from Jesus exclusively, which Paul counters so well and so effectively in chapters one and the first part of chapter two by by elevating Jesus Christ so highly that nothing else measures up. By calling the Colossian believers to be so enchanted with the person and work of Jesus Christ that nothing else could enchant them. And in light of all of that, he says in our passage this morning first, therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, remember remember Colossian believers, when you came to a saving realization of, of who Jesus Christ is? Remember, remember when Epaphras, your pastor, gave you the truth of the gospel and, and the Holy Spirit quickened your heart to receive that and your life was completely transformed? You remember that, Paul is saying? Don't forget it. Don't forget the truth that the, the reality of what you have heard is not just simply a message The reality of what you heard is embodied in a person, and that person is Christ Jesus, the Lord. The interesting thing about that phrase, if if you like this kind of thing, is, is that this is a unique version of this phrasing for Paul. Nowhere else in any of his letters do we see him use the phrase that we see here in Colossians chapter two, verse six, Christ Jesus, the Lord. And the way that he phrases it emphasizes the office of Jesus Christ. 
It's a threefold reality that he unpacks here. First, Jesus is the Christ. He is the Messiah. He is the sent one of God come to take away the sins of the world. He is Jesus. His name means God saves. And this Jesus is the Lord. He is sovereign and supreme over all things that he himself created, including the salvation of those who would come to him. So what he's saying here, in contrast to those false teachers who said that fulfillment can't come through Jesus Christ exclusively, it's Jesus plus something else. What Paul is saying is, no, no, no. Jesus is enough. It's Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Why? He's the Lord. He is the one who brought you into the family of God. He alone is the one who included you when you deserved to be excluded. He alone is the one who saved you when you were destined for death. He alone is the one who illuminated the way of light when you were wandering in darkness. If you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, who he is, what he said, what he did, then you have everything that you could never achieve on your own. Christ Jesus, the Lord alone is able to do this for you if you've received him. It's a gift of God's grace. His undeserved, unearned gift that he offers freely to any who come to him. No strings attached. As 1 John 1.9 says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. you come in desperate need of grace in full understanding and realization of the fact that you deserve nothing but in Jesus you're offered everything believing in who he is and what he has done if you have received him then Paul goes on to say in this verse if you've received Christ Jesus the Lord walk in him continue to live in him He says, live in these realities that are yours. Don't stray from him. Keep your eyes focused on Christ Jesus, the Lord, and do what he says. To walk in him means that I continually live consistent with my confession of him as Lord of my life. To walk in Jesus means I continually live with my confession of him as Lord of my life. Because if I've truly received him, then that is the reality for me. If he really is Lord of my life, then he defines what I do. Which means I walk in him in in four key ways. We see Paul unpack in verse 8. Four key ways. Take a look. Or sorry, verse 7. We walk in him first, rooted. It's an agricultural metaphor. My girls and I, I have two daughters. We were outside in, in the backyard gardening all day yesterday. It was a beautiful day. It was wonderful. Teaching the girls how to weed the garden. And Annie, my oldest, was fascinated about the fact that sometimes when you pull a weed out of the ground, the root goes deeper into the ground or went deeper into the ground than it did above the ground. And that's the idea that Paul is getting at here. The moment that you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, you are rooted in him. The tentacles of your faith go deeply into the person and work of Jesus Christ, and you are secure forever in him if he is your Lord. And it's an ironic idea, but but we walk best when we are unmoved from Jesus Christ. 
We progress in the faith in the faith best when we are unmoved from Jesus Christ. And so we must ensure that we are and remain rooted in Jesus like a tree that is immovable by the storms of life. So our faith must be immovable from the rock and foundation that is Christ Jesus our Lord. We must rock rooted in him. We must walk, secondly, built up in him. Paul mixes metaphors. There's an agricultural metaphor first. There's a construction metaphor here now. And notice the ongoing nature of the comparison. We are one time rooted in Jesus Christ the Lord when we come to him in faith, but we are in the process of being, the ongoing process of being built up through faith in him, looking more and more like Jesus Christ every day, being built up brick by brick into the person that God wants us to be. But notice the fact that this is a metaphor that talks to something that we do collectively. We are built up together, which comes in our lives as we submit more and more to the work that he wants us to do. The body needs every part The building of the body of Christ needs every part. And so we commit to this together. We work through this together. Thirdly, we are walking established in the faith just as you were taught. The original language for the word established is a legal metaphor. It's the act of something being confirmed something being verified, something being proven true. And the the faith of the Colossian believers and us will be confirmed to be true based on our commitment to the gospel. The more we commit to the gospel, the more we focus on it, the more we live our lives wholly focused on Christ Jesus our Lord, the more we will be strengthened to continue to live for Jesus just as the Colossians were taught and just as we have been taught. Finally, we are to walk abounding in thanksgiving. Abounding in thanksgiving. You ever seen a storm sewer overflowing after a heavy rain? Maybe you saw that just on Thursday as the storms came through this area. I did. That's the picture of what it means to abound in thanksgiving. The entirety of our lives are overflowing with a thankfulness to God. This idea was was a consistent one for Paul because a heart abounding in thankfulness is clear proof of the reality of faith. A heart abounding in thankfulness is clear proof of the reality of faith. The concept of an unthankful follower of Jesus was impossible for Paul. How could someone who realizes all that we have received, all that we have been given, what we need and so much more by Jesus Christ, how could we be dissatisfied? How could we be unthankful? A dissatisfied and disappointed heart attitude is evidence that your gospel foundation is shallow, short, and unstable if it exists at all. Because being thankful is an act of confession and worship. When your life abounds in thanksgiving, you are affirming the lordship of Jesus Christ who has given you everything you have and so much more. 
These are the ways we are to walk in Jesus. These are the things that he defines that we do. This is evidence of a life that has been truly changed by the good news, the gospel. You're rooted. You're built up. You're established. You're abounding in thanksgiving. The evidence of Jesus being all I need is that he changes what I do. But notice that that is a means, not an end. Jesus changing what I do, that doesn't save me. That is a result of him saving me. And that's a critical distinction to make. We are so easily tempted today as believers to believe that in some way, shape, or form that my works, my efforts get me into God's favor. Or if we may not believe it in our hearts, we certainly act like it. When we believe in any way that we can earn by the things that we do our way into God's favor, we are making the same critical error that these false teachers were seeking to lead the people of the church of Colossae astray did. So we're seeking to add to the exclusivity of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And in our obedience we become disobedient. Dane Orland in his, in his book, Surprised by Jesus, writes, the fundamental means of change is a deeper and deeper reflection on the very gospel that rescued us in the first place. It sounds backward, but the path to holiness is through not beyond the grace of the gospel because only undeserved grace can truly melt and transform the heart. Disobedience is not healed with obedience. Morality can reform, but never transform immorality. The root by which the New Testament exhorts radical obedience is not by tempering grace, but by driving it home all the more deeply. And we temper the grace of God when we believe or when we live like our obedience saves. Like I can earn my way into the family of God. deeper understanding of and love for the gospel as I recognize more and more of who Jesus is and what he's done for me and the reality that he alone is all I need. That is what results in true heart and life change. That is what results in him defining what I do. Because the more I see my need for him, the more I see that he truly is all I need the more I see his word as truth, the more it will change me. Jesus will change what we do the more we focus on him. Salvation by grace through faith says, Lord, I offer my everything to serve you. Salvation by works says, what's the least I can do? earn my way in. It's a decidedly wrong way of thinking. Jesus will change what we do the more we focus on him. 
But make no mistake, that does require a conscious decision on our part. This is not a throwing of our hands up in a fatalist view of just Jesus doing whatever it is that he's going to do, and, my, and my, not, my, I play no active part in it. Because as the passage continues, Paul describes a fork in the road. Down one path, we see lies, enslavement, and emptiness. But down the other path, we see truth and freedom and fulfillment. And each Colossian believer and each of us here today must decide on which path we will continue. Will we listen to the lies of the world or will we hear the truth of Jesus and respond? Which brings us to this secondly. When Jesus is all I need, he defines what is true. He defines what is true. Verse 8 begins with, with a warning. Paul, Paul goes right after the heresy that's facing this church. See to it. Beware, he says. Be careful. See to it that no one takes you captive. Beware in your walk with Christ. Don't let anyone sneak up on you and lure you away. Don't let anybody put a bag over your head and throw you in a van and take you away from the truth. How would this happen? How how would people take the Colossians captive? By philosophy and empty deceit, Paul says. Now, I want to make something clear. Paul is not ripping on philosophy in general. That's not what he's saying here. But he's condemning a particular philosophy which of course would be the heresy that the Colossians were dealing with, which is empty deceit, Paul says. It's hollow and meaningless lies that have been passed down through human tradition. But in reality, they come directly from the elemental spirits of the world, Paul says. False teaching is spread, it's, it's influenced by evil forces. That's what Paul is talking about when he says elemental spirits of the world. But most importantly, this is false, this is not true, because he says in verse 8 at the end, it is not according to Christ. It's not in step with the one who is the way, the truth, and the life. John 14, 6. See, we we too must be on our guard. We must see to it. We must be so careful to guard against the falsehoods that the evil one might seek to peddle to us through our world. Make no mistake, Satan is deceptive and he's masterful at it. These empty philosophies that we see in our world today are powerful and seductive, but they are enslaving. And we see them everywhere. They challenge for the rule of our minds. They challenge for the rule of our children's minds. They challenge for the rule of our grandchildren's minds. Lies like live your truth. On our own, we have no truth. Jesus is truth. Lies like you're enough. No, you're not. We can find all we need in Christ, however, Left alone, we're not even close. Lies like, put yourself first. I mean, that's narcissism and self-worship if I've ever heard it. Lies like, you only live once. Nope. This life is the welcome mat to eternity. Lies like, God just wants you to be happy. Nope. God wants you to be holy. 
lies like it's all about love. Well, that's partly true. As long as the creator of love defines what love is. We must be so careful about testing everything that we are hearing against what Jesus defines to be true. See to it, he says. Beware, watch out. How? How can we watch out? How can we be careful? How can we know what is true? Well, we follow the other path to the fullness of freedom by two things that we see in verse 9 and 10 to ensure that we're living by the way that Jesus says is true. The first is affirm his deity. Affirm Jesus' deity. Verse 9 might seem like the biggest, uh, duh, verse in all of Scripture for those inclined believers, but it's one that has the most massive of implications. Look at verse 9. For in him, in Jesus, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Jesus Christ is God. He is fully God in fully human form. He is not similar in substance to God. He is fully God in fully human form. It's both. And notice how Paul emphasizes that again in verse 9. He doesn't just say it's the fullness of deity. He says it's the whole fullness of deity. Not part fullness, not a little fullness. The whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. You know, one of the ways that the evil one takes us away from the truth of who Jesus is and what he defines to be true is not necessarily with just like categorically overt lies. The one of the ways that he, he lures us away so effectively and efficiently is with half-truths, with part lies, with things that might sound like they're good, but in reality are further, are, could not be further from it. And it leaves the people of God unsettled or worse into sinfulness. And there are preachers and there are leaders in churches today that some might even put in our lane, in our tribe, who have massive popularity and influence, but who deny the fullness of deity dwelling bodily in Jesus Christ, the God-man. These are preachers and leaders who look and sound good, who cast a wide net of impact and influence, reaching thousands, if not millions. They're on TV. Their worship bands tour across the world. But they deny this essential truth, saying Jesus is not the fullness of God, the whole fullness of God in human form, but is similar in essence to God. And loved ones, that's heresy. The distinction might seem small, but the implications are massive. If Jesus Christ is not the fullness of God fully in human form, if the fullness of deity does not dwell bodily in Jesus, then he is not the same as the Father and the Spirit, which means he cannot be Savior, and his sacrifice on our behalf is not effectual, it is not complete, it is empty and meaningless, which would make all of this that we're doing today completely worthless. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, we would be a people most to be pitied. Because this means nothing. If that's true. See to it. Be careful. Be on your guard. Affirm the deity 
of Christ. Because if we do, then we need nothing else. And this is the danger of empty philosophy. It, it adds to the exclusivity of Christ, which takes it away from the truth. Jesus Christ is God. He says of himself in John 14, 9, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. That's an unbelievable claim to make. For a human being to say, anyone who's seen me has seen God, only the God-man, the one in whom the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily could say that and it be true. Supplementing anything to the reality that salvation is by God's grace alone, received through faith alone, in Christ alone, is a subversion of the truth and of faith. We must affirm the exclusivity of Christ. We must affirm the fullness of his deity if he is to determine what is true. And secondly, we are to affirm his authority. It stands by logical reason. If you affirm Christ's deity, then we would affirm the natural authority that comes with that. And that's what Paul gets at. And the implications of it are critical for us. Verse 10. And you have been filled in him. You have been filled in the one in whom the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Who is the head of all rule and authority? The Colossians and us, if we have received Christ Jesus the Lord by extension, we share in Christ's power over every rule and every authority through our union with Him, and we have everything we could need in Jesus. He has authority over all things as the head, so we have nothing to fear. The divine fullness that lives in Christ is what fills us in him. And so we can know with certainty that in Jesus Christ alone, we are complete. All that we could ever need is in him and we can trust him to know and believe that what he says is true. Because if Jesus Christ is fully God, then he has ultimate authority over all things that he has created and that he sustains. And so we can be free to trust his ability as the one with supreme power and authority over all things to make clear for us what is true and what is not. And faith in him is all we need. And as a result of that, we share in his authoritative position. And so what can this world do to us? When we have the one who is the head of all rules and authority as our Savior and Lord. All we could ever need, all that we could ever want spiritually is found in one person. Who is the way, the truth, and the life. Who is the head of all rule and authority. And as I surrender to him more and more as the one in whom all of this can be found, then ultimately... See this last, he will define who I am. He defines who I am. In the final few verses of this passage, we see a lot of, of metaphorical language which Paul uses to describe the wonderful truths uh, for the Colossians of, of who they are in Christ, to describe the freedom that, that can be found in him when he defines who I am. Verse 11 in him, 
also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Now, circumcision was an Old Testament symbol of the covenant, of the inclusion into the family and people of God. And there were some Jewish believers that insisted on keeping this symbolic ritual and enforcing it, adding it to faith in Christ as a requirement to being welcomed into the family of God. Paul turns that right on his head. In saying to these Gentile, non-Jewish believers in Colossae, that they are welcomed already through a circumcision made without hands, a spiritual symbol of their acceptance into the family of God as their old sinful self, their whole body of flesh was put off by the circumcision of Christ, a poignant and graphic illustration of Christ's crucifixion. Colossians didn't need to feel second rate to those who went through with the old ways of being welcomed into the family of God by faith in the effectual work of Christ who died. The Colossians were free from their old sinful way and welcomed into the family of God. Who am I? If I'm in Christ, I'm free from sin. Verse 12, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith, that's the key, through faith in the powerful working of God by virtue of faith, my faith in Jesus Christ, my believing in who he said he is, in what he did for me as the way by which my sins could be forgiven, I can be redeemed, justified in the eyes of God, restored in relationship to him, bestowed with an inheritance that comes as being as as his son or his daughter through the work of Jesus Christ, I share in his death and resurrection. That's what baptism symbolizes. When we have people down here in the tank going under the water and back up again, that's what baptism symbolizes, the death and resurrection of Christ that was for us, that we share in by faith. And herein lies the wonder of salvation. Jesus Christ the Lord died the death that I deserved and was raised in a way I could never deserve, but through faith alone, I join with him in both. If I'm in Christ, who am I? I'm free from death. Verse 13. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having having forgiven all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. In our sin, we are dead spiritually. Even as Jesus died physically, naturally on our own, we have no affections toward God. We are dead in our sin. There is no response when we are pricked by God if we're dead in our sin. But as real as the resurrection of Christ was on the third day, a new day has dawned for those who live with Jesus Christ as all I need. Verses 13 and 14 is the heartbeat of the whole of the Christian life, the eternally wonderful summary of all that we believe. I have life. How? I'm forgiven. How? 
My debt has been canceled. How? It was set aside by Jesus. How? It was nailed to the cross along with him by God the Father. And this legal sequence exists and took place before you were born and you receive it through faith in Christ. We don't earn it. God brought us from death to life. He forgave us of all our trespasses, past, present, and future. The I owe you that you owed to God the Father, a rap sheet longer than we could have ever imagined, was nailed to the cross of Jesus Christ, was paid for in full by his shed blood for you. And its legal demands are canceled by what Jesus has done. We are set free from our indebtedness, all our wrongs. First Peter chapter 2, verses 24 and 25, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Who am I? If I'm in Christ... I'm free from guilt. Finally, verse 15. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Christian, the victory that we have in Christ goes even further than freedom from sin and death and guilt which is wonderful in itself. But it has deeper implications because at the cross, all the spiritual powers of the world were officially put down. All of them were shown to be powerless in Jesus' presence. Commentator Todd Still wrote this, by stripping Jesus and stringing him to a wooden implement of death, Political and religious powers thought they were subjecting to shame a peasant Jew with a handful of followers and concurrently eradicating his pernicious influence. All the while, Colossians contends, other forces were at work. Those sinister forces that sought to render impotent a radical Jew causing disquiet were themselves defeated and disgraced. Through the cross of Jesus Christ, God set in motion a spiritual revolution, victory over powers and authorities of the world and the spiritual forces of evil means that I no longer have to fearfully appease them. While Satan has been granted some sort of effect on this world for a time, if I am in Christ, he's got nothing on me because he had nothing on Jesus. Who am I? In Christ, I'm free from fear because I'm victorious with him. If we have received Christ Jesus the Lord, then we are in him. Welcomed into his family. Heirs to his kingdom. Free from sin free from death, free from guilt, free from fear, victorious along with him as he rules and reigns at the right hand of the throne of God the Father, all received 
by virtue of the accepting of the work that he has done for us in faith. All that we can bring is a realization and admission of our guilt and desperate need and inability on our own. To come to the throne of grace and the cross of Christ and to be welcomed without reservation by the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Christ Jesus the Lord is whom you find, in whom you find your new identity. Son or daughter of the king. This is the good news of the gospel. This is the way that faith is built. By recognizing that Jesus alone is all that I need. This world tries in many ways to derail us with empty philosophies. The evil one tries to derail us with empty religion or salvation by morality. Both are meaningless, empty foolishness in light of Christ. Don't live your truth. Live Jesus' truth. Live full in his fullness. Live free in his freedom. Live free with Christ as all you need. Trust in him alone completely and let him define what you do, what is true, and who you are. Burdened and beaten down Christian. Find healing and freedom in Jesus alone. Weak and hurting soul. Find your help and strength in Jesus alone. Unbeliever. Being tossed to and fro by the ways of the empty philosophy and deceit of the world. Find fulfillment and truth and salvation in Jesus alone. Joyful, faith-filled believer, find your all in Jesus. He alone is all you need. Let me pray. God, what a truth we have rehearsed from your word again today. What an incredible reality that you have offered to us. Not that we can earn or achieve, but that comes only, completely, and wholly through you and the work that you accomplished for us by sending your own son in the fullness of deity to take on the fullness of human flesh, to die in our place, that we might live to him and in you. God, forgive us for the ways that we have tried to add to the truth of the gospel of who Jesus is by thinking that our own efforts, our own works can in some way earn what we can never on our own. Forgive us for trying to make our way there with our own morality. And help us to see that you are all we need, Jesus. Help us to recognize that you solved our greatest problem and so you're gonna take care of the rest of them. I pray for those burdened and beaten down in this place who are struggling right now to cling to these truths. And I pray, Jesus, that you alone would hold them fast they would surrender 
commit completely to you. See that you are all they need and that their faith would grow as you define what they do, as you define what is true, as you define who they are. God, I pray for those in the room, those watching online who have not yet bowed the knee to receive the free gift of salvation offered in Jesus Christ alone. God, save them now, I pray. Spirit, be moving and working to tug on their hearts and don't let them leave this place without responding in faith, I pray. Start them on the path of faith, Lord, by recognizing the only way in is to admit their sinful guilt and their inability of themselves to come to you and to receive Christ Jesus the Lord. For all of us, Father, help us to walk in him and the wonderful truths and realities that we find in him alone. We love you, Lord. Do this for your glory. We pray in his name. Amen.